Yeah, you know, um, I, I guess I come from a pretty big, a pretty big family, and um, you know, we all live probably within a few minutes of each other. You know, in, in Philly, Philly's already a, a, a small. It feels like a small town, um, but I grew up loving music. Um, lots of music in the house growing up. Um, grew up during like the very infancy of hip hop. So like culturally, you know, hairstyles were changing. Um, fashion was changing. Break dancing was in. Graffiti culture was in. DJ culture was in. And, uh, and as a kid, I just wanted to be part of all of it. So I just was like a sponge absorbing, you know, every little bit of culture I could, I could get. Yeah, I saw I saw you had your own hip hop group. Um, how did that all come together? You know, I think back then every everybody had like a little rap book. So everybody either wanted to be a rapper or or a DJ. And um, you know, me and a couple of my close friends who I met in in ninth grade ended up deciding we wanted to form a rap group and um and worked our butts off like every day rehearsing and and in these battles and talent shows you know that that we would have throughout the city and um and the culture back then it was very talent show driven so you had um this band called square roots which ended up becoming like the roots um you you had um uh boys the men in the, in the talent shows uh lisa who became left eye from tlc so it was like philly was like this very, very um, culturally rich community um, with all, all of this talent and all of this ambition, just with everybody just trying to get out. So, yeah. uh, so, so that that was like our 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 crew coming up. What what groups or acts were you into at the time? I mean, was it like you know like Grandmaster Flash and kind of those OG hip hop guys, or like were there different kind of coming up artists that you were like really into at the time? Yeah, you know, back then, I think like Big Daddy Kane, um, KRS-One, Eric B. and Rakim. Um, Eric B. and Rakim was the first album I, I ever bought with my own money, um, the Paid in Full album. And so um, those were like the, like, especially like during 1988, around that time, it was like considered probably like the golden era for for, for, for hip hop. So you had just so many diverse types of, uh, of music within hip hop. So you, you know, on one end you had like NWA that was like super hardcore. And then on the other end you had acts like heavy D and the boys and Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. And then of course everything in between. So it was a, it was a lot of music to experiment back then. So Troy, Pat's more of the music guy. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just learning all this stuff as you guys speak, which is great. Uh, so, so I'll ask about stuff that's maybe a little bit more non-music. Um, early on um i'm curious what was you know your family life like and you know growing up you know how, how how was that for you and what sort of an impact did that make you know for you as a child but also you know later on now as an adult yeah my my childhood was interesting you know because i i kind of consider myself and even to this day where i never really fit into like one group so I always found myself having to be a little bit of a um, of a shapeshifter. So it was like, you know, not nerdy enough for the nerds, not cool enough for the cool kids. So it's like so so sort of sort of shapeshifting. And so I think that sort of shaped my ability to adjust to, you know, different environments and different people. 
And then, um, you know, my, my mom was a single mom and, you know, we didn't have money growing up, you know, it, like our family was, you know, very wealthy when it came to like love and, 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 and closeness. Um, but financially we, we struggled. So I think, you know, me having a hustle to buy my own stuff, you know, because my mom never could buy me like the sneakers that I really wanted. So I had to get like the, um, we call them Bobos, like the, the, the sneakers that were like not non-name brand. And, um, so, you know, I got teased going, going to school. So that put like a little chip on my shoulder where I'm like, okay, I got to go out and mow some lawns and shovel some snow so I could get those sneakers that my mom can't afford to buy me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then also I think the other piece that shaped me, you know, I grew up without, um, my, my dad was in prison for, um, but for most of my, for all of my childhood, essentially. And so, um, that uh, sort of gap in my life, sort of, you know, from him being very involved um, in the very beginning and and, and sort of um, going away from there, it really sort of um, put another chip on my shoulder in terms of I, I have to I have to achieve. Mm -hmm. I have to achieve. And so mm -hmm. I think those are the sort of little bits of ingredients that sort of um shape shape me you know that's an that's a really you know inspirational story when you think about it from the beginning to where you are now and as and obviously we'll talk about you know what happened along the way w what do you think it was for you that you know allowed you to still have a positive mindset right because those are challenging times, especially for a young kid who's still in the, you know, the early stages of development and not having your father present or not having, you know, money to be able to perhaps enjoy the things that some other kids your age were enjoying. Like kids are pretty smart. They, they recognize those things. They, it affects them. But why were you, I don't want to use the word special, but why were you different in the sense that you were able to kind of get out of that? You know, I, I, I give a lot of a lot of the credit to my mom because like, you know, where she got up and went to work every day. So like that, like it was no excuses in terms of um, not working. Right. And so even when we had to scrape together money for the bus and things like that or whatever, it was like a, a means to an end. And I like I I tease my kids now, like when, you know, they complain there's no catch up. I'm like. We used to have to put water in the ketchup bottle and like, you know, you shake it up to get the last little bit out. Or, yep. you know, we, we ate it. Uh, we, Did you guys uh, put the water in the soap dispenser too? Absolutely. You yeah, stretch I, it. I, st I still do that because I'm just like, there's definitely soap down there. It's just <laughs> not being reached. <laughs> I'm telling you, like it is, you learn how to be resourceful though. And um, yeah. so, so, so it was never really, it never really felt like the end of the world during my childhood, you know? Um, and so that, that's, that's the part, you know, I think she, she did a really good job in terms of making sure that it never felt um, like, like there, there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And then the other thing, you know, a friend of mine who I met in ninth grade, um, who's still one of my close friends, one of the first things he said to me was thoughts become things. And, and he had this whole thing about positive uh, mental attitude. And it was like, I don't know. I'm like, where do you get this from in ninth grade, by the way? But that that was so helpful 
in terms of like learning it at that age, because I, I, when I saw that positive outcomes would come, you know, fr- from it, it just stayed as a tool in my toolbox. Mm. And, um, and then right after, you know, shortly after that, I met um, Will Smith at Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. And, you know, Will is like the ultimate optimist when, you know, when, when it comes to those sort of things. And so I think having all of that at that early age and then seeing guys like Boys to Men um, go from dudes in a talent show to like breaking Elvis Presley records on pop charts or Lisa moved to Atlanta and you turn on video jukebox and all of a sudden she's in this group TLC is like, anything can happen. Like right. you really believed anything could happen. You know, it's interesting. It's like, you know, when you, when you can, when you kind of boil it down, you can say, you know, like at the time there's a lot going on in your neighborhood. Right. And like, there's a lot of like action to be around and being like in the right place, at the right time type of thing. But it sounds like you were also, you're also able to attract certain people that had a certain mindset that really contributed to your mindset in a positive way. And so like, whether it's your friend in, in ninth grade or will, or any of these folks, like what was that something that was intentional? Like were you, or was it just natural that you kind of came across people like this? I I got lucky because I had bad luck doing dumb shit. <laughs> <laughs> I got really lucky. The, the 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 first time I tried to sell drugs, um, the drugs got stolen. <laughs> the drugs got stolen. And so I was like a terrible drug dealer on on, on, on the first and only day. So they never hey, you attracted gave me the guy that stole the drugs that didn't lead you down <laughs> that path. So. I got I got really lucky because like and and you know back then crack penetrated our neighborhood, and yeah. so everybody you know was basically kids who you were in your class. All of a sudden they're showing up and they got on. Gucci outfits and jewelry and, you know, all of a sudden 16 year old guys are driving, you know, $30,000 cars and getting all of the cute girls. So all of a sudden every guy wants to do that. And then in Philly, it, it was a, um, a gang called JBM that stood for junior black mafia and their slogan was get down or lay down. So it's like, if you didn't sell drugs for them, you know, you, there were, there were consequences. Luckily enough, a lot of those guys in the neighborhood saw potential in me, so they didn't allow me to get into into trouble. And so, so they like, so I got, I ended up being able to walk through certain neighborhoods that other people weren't able to walk through, and uh, because they they knew, like, even though I had friends that were into certain things, I I didn't, I wasn't necessarily built for that. I wasn't built for that. What was the potential they saw though? Like, was it music related, like your talent for that? Or was it just you as a person? I think it was like, I always was that um, enterprising kid in the neighborhood. So I would throw like the house parties at my friend's Mm -hmm. house. You know, I would be the kid. I would cut school all the time, by the way. But I would cut school. And sometimes, some days I would go to the library and read a certain book that I got, like that I wanted to read. Certain days we would throw what we call 40 parties where you just would buy, you know, 40 ounce beers from the store and, and, and hang out. So it's like, so I, I sort of had both elements, but it's like, I didn't have that element that if I was put in a, in, in a situation that 
I could I, I could pull the trigger on somebody or I you know or like I, it just was certain things that I wouldn't be able to face my family if I went all the way with and I think they saw that and 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 a lot of those guys knew my family my grandmother still lives in the same house today so it's like you know every everybody in the neighborhood calls her mama so it's like then. They're not going to let, they don't want to go to mama's house after getting me in trouble too. Right. You know, Troy, I, I hope that one day when you write a book is just called Troy Carter, how not to sell drugs. <laughs> or just like something that people are like, what the fuck is this book going to be about? And it then would they be open a one page book, how to sell drugs. It would be a that's one it. page that's book. It, yeah. yeah, that's it. Like, don't get it stolen, get it sold. Um, so, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned not, going to classes often did you end up dropping out eventually from high school or college or what was that trajectory looking like i I dropped out in 11th grade so like i I was a really good student probably up until like seventh eighth grade and then when when i went to high school i just like checked out i like i completely lost interest um really was focused on like i love music and loved hanging out with my with my friends and I just wasn't engaged. And then and I ended up in probably four or five different high schools and then finally just ended up dropping out. And then my mom, um, she she said she had to take me somewhere and it ended up being um, the center, this job core center. And next thing you know, I was on a bus headed to Port Deposit, Maryland, and um, where she said, if you want to do this music thing, you better come home with a piece of paper. And so I ended up getting a GED um, in job from Job Corps. And and what what was the GED like? I mean, I mean, it's not a like a focus thing, but like, what did you think you would do after with that? Like, was was it something that you, you're like, I want to just go down the music path, and that's like the only thing for me? Or you you know what is like she she did it. She ended up. I, I think it, it pretty much saved my 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 life. You know, having to get off the streets. Because, you know, a lot of like one of our close, close friends, um, Joe, who, uh, you know, me and his brother were really like um, best friends growing up. Um, Joe got killed, you know, a few weeks after me, you know, being at their house, you know, um, cut down with an AK-47. And, you know, my um, younger cousin, Daryl, who was, you know, two years younger than me, first cousin, he ended up getting killed. So, we, you know, it, it was it was guys my age dying every day in, in our mm-hmm. neighborhood. And so she sent me to Job Corps. She sent my brother to the Marines, and my older brother to the Marines, and she sent my younger brother to boarding school. So she got all of us off the streets. And um, and so I wanted to get out as fast as I could. So that so I took word processing. So I didn't have to learn automotive and like it was like these hardcore like <laughs> technical skills. And so yeah. word processing was like the easiest thing. So I learned word processing. Nice. And then you, so you, you mentioned, um, you mentioned Will Smith a couple of times. Um, when, at what point did you end up meeting him? And like, I, I think if I read correctly, you guys got signed by him, like your, your, your kind of hip hop group at the time. Yeah, we, I got, we got, we ended up going down to his studio and uh, it was Jazzy Jeff's studio. And we went down there like almost every day just to see if they were going to be in there so we get audition and like literally in the cold in the snow waiting outside the recording studio 
a friend of ours let us in and um and that's when we met will but i was about 17 years old when i met will and like what were they were there a lot of people like trying to get them to listen to their like demo tapes and stuff at the time or everybody was yeah you know because they they were the, they were really like will will was the biggest star to make it out outside of you know philadelphia and um and so everybody you know was trying to get his attention and this is like at the very beginning of Fresh Prince of Bel Air, so it's like you know he's he's becoming a global star at that point. So everybody was trying to, but we just said we were going to keep going down there until somebody let us in. Hmm. And then and then what happened? So that so they ended up signing you to their label. Yeah, they ended up. We auditioned. Um, I, I never forget. Uh, Will said, "How are you guys getting home?" And we said, "We don't know. We're just going to hop on the train again." <laughs> And he said, uh, hold up, uh, we'll drop you guys off. And um, and he ended up taking us to my aunt's house and he rang the doorbell and um, and he let them know. He said, hey, th- th- these kids are going to be all right. And they like uh, my family's face were like, you know, sh- shocked, you know, that this yeah. guy is, you know, standing on the porch or whatever. But it was like it just was a good validation that, you know, we weren't doing this in vain, that, you know, I was really working hard at it. What did Will's like, you know, what did that do for you? I mean, you know, obviously it makes you feel good, but did it push you even further? Yeah, you know, he 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 worked us pretty hard in a sense of um being being uh like we would get a word to learn every single day. Like literally it would be, we would have to study the dictionary and like just to help build our vocabularies. It was like, it was almost more etiquette and, um, and, and like, like refining us. Cause like when I say we were rough, rough, rough around the edges, like super rough around our edges. And so I think, you know, more than anything, um, watching how, how he operated and conducted business and like really showed up because nobody could outwork the guy. So it's like, so that, that was the most inspiring part. You know, the sad part of the story was, you know, we got dropped from his label just as quick as, as we got signed to the label. And, you know, that, that gap in between getting dropped and, and, um, and him, uh, and and his his manager James Lasseter bringing me on board to to work for them, that was a hard gap to sort of go from hey I'm gonna make it to I don't like I I don't know what I'm gonna do like I have no plan B whatsoever so um so that 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 adjustment was really hard yeah so what, what did James yeah what did James want you to do at the label like what was your role there so. You know, I did I, I did everything like from I managed Jazzy Jeff's recording studio, um, literally carried records for Jeff's what, for Jeff when he went on the road to do parties and things like that. Um, to work, I was James's assistant. Everything from answering phones to running errands, getting cars washed. So I did anything that they needed me to do. And um, so so part of it was you know going back to that thing where you know, they saw, they saw some potential and, and I think James really didn't, he saw that when I went back to Philly, I kind of defaulted to, you know, just the neighborhood. 
you know, so, and, and, you know, so it's not like I stayed in the music business and, you know, or anything like that as I sort of defaulted. And so I think, um, that he just wanted to find something for me to do. What did your mom think of all this stuff? Like with your early music days? They thought I was crazy. Um, you know, I think my, my entire family, um, but my, with the exception of my mom's sister, my aunt Val is like, she, she believed in me like crazy in terms of I could do anything. And I think that was like a bit, a, a, a motivator because no, everybody else in my family thought I thought I was nuts. And, um, which I was, <laughs> and I, cause I just took, I, I took everything to the extreme. And it's just part of my personality to this day. But um, I, I don't think my fam, my family, they, my grandmother thought I was doing stuff illegal, even after we, we got signed. Because <laughs> it's like, all of a sudden, I'm showing up in nice cars and like, you know, um, my outfits are better, whatever, whatever. And probably until I was like a talent manager. And um, I think she saw me in like Ebony magazine, which is like the the black version of of time. And right. like, so you go into any black household, at the, you know, during that time, you would see Ebony magazine and Jet magazine on every table. So you weren't famous until you were in Ebony or Jet. Didn't matter. You could be on the cover of New York Times. You could be on Late Night with whoever. Ebony and Jet made you famous, and that's that's when she recognized. Hmm. Um, how long were were you working at the label with James and Will, and what ultimately happened with that? Um, I worked I worked with them off and on, probably for like maybe a period of four years, kind of off and on. You know, um, probably the final off, J, um, James, we call him JL. JL fired me and sent me back to Philly, and um, so that was like the that was like the ultimate motivator, like when nothing wakes you up like cold concrete. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, getting fired from that job was like super humbling. And how old were you at the time? Um, I probably was in my early 20s when I when I got fired from James. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, and and I was the man like, you know, I, I, everybody back in Philly, you know, I thought that I was like this huge executive. And, I, you know, while I'm really just answering phones or whatever, but, you know, to go back and have to, you know, face people that, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of starting from square one was like it was as real as it gets. Yeah. Did you have any idea what you would do? I mean, I'm, I know it's a big hit to the ego at the time and. I don't know, like, like, what did you have to do to like pick yourself back up and figure out kind of what was next? You know, I, I went through, I remember the first week I got fired, I was in my apartment in North Hollywood and I could barely get out of bed sort of thing. And um, because I really didn't want to go back to Philly, but I didn't have an income or really alternative or network to even stay in L.A., so, so I, en I ended up having to go back and I was so angry at, at, at James because, you know, this is a guy from my neighborhood who, you know, grew up six blocks from us. And I just felt like he turned his back on me and I took zero responsibility or, or and I could not see how he could let me go. And, um, and 
I was a screw up. Like I just, you know, I was, I had five side hustles while I was working for them. You know, I was, you know, using the company car service to go see some girl I was dating while, while, while I was there. And, you know, at the end of the week, I would, you know, pay back the general manager when I would get my check or whatever. And she snitched on me one day. She got mad at me and she told JL, she was like, just so you know, Troy's been using the company car service. <laughs> and, <laughs> and honestly, he didn't care about the car service as much as he cared about who he thought I was becoming. And I didn't see any of that at the time. And after I went back to Philly, I connected with, you know, um, a couple of buddies of mine who were, you know, starting a a, a promotions company and management company, and they needed help sort of formation and, and organization. And they called on me to do it. And that was sort of my foot back in and, um, and sort of the confidence builder and just to be able to, uh, how, how do I put it? Um, some, you know, when you get like, it's almost like getting kicked down. You just need a small little wins just to start rebuilding your confidence and like, you know, working with those guys. And, you know, I started helping out and fig, um, with Eve and, um, and, and that sort of the work that I was putting in around Eve sort of started giving me my confidence back. Hmm. How did you end up connecting with Eve? I, I met her along. I met her when she. I met Eve when she was probably sixteen or seventeen. She came and 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 auditioned at a studio that I was in, and um, she had a rap partner, and um, and she was really good. Her rap partner just had a, a really stink attitude, and so you know it, it was like, okay, she's good. The other one's not, but you know, sort of forget it. And then we reconnected through. Um, the company that, 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 that I, that I was helping out. And she was, she, I I was having some issues with the company. I ended up parting ways. Then she ended up leaving and parting ways. And she called me up and asked me to help her find a management company. And, um, and I started taking around for meetings and, you know, at the end of the day, she said, look, you've done a great job so far. You know, why don't you just do it? And that was sort of my first real, step into talent management. And did you start your own company like at that point or you were still working somewhere else? It, it, it was, uh, so th- I started my, I would, I don't want to go as far as calling it a company because I, <laughs> it was so much bigger than what it is. It's like, um, you know, you could go on legal zoom sort of yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. like right. an LLC. Right. So you had your I, LLC here. I have my own LLC. <laughs> <laughs> So and it, so it was a limited liability company. So hey, yes, you can make yes. it sound as big as you want. You know, when you put that on a business card, the LLC, it makes uh-huh. you sound big time. Yep. But um, but it was only me. So so <laughs> it was me and Eve, and um and I bumped office space from a buddy in New York and a buddy in Philly. So I just would go use his office in New York and use my buddy's office in Philly. Multi location company. I mean, yeah, you're exactly. Like, you're like east <laughs> west everywhere. <laughs> Uh, not to jump around too much. I think I read there was a time where you met um, P. Diddy, um, Sean Combs, and were interning at Bad Boy Records, which I, th- I don't know if that was like the heyday of like Bad Boy Records with Notorious B.I.G. and all. But when when was that? Was that before meeting Eve or after? That that was before meeting Eve. So um, I was I was promoting parties in Philly. That was one of my side hustles, and um, so I would promote these parties, and um, and I was promoting. Um, a notorious B.I.G. show 
which um, Big never showed up to. And uh, and so, which was my biggest show with like 3,000 people. And um, and I get a call that he was a no-show. And I got on the phone with his manager and his head of his label, which was P. Diddy. And we got into a big fight on the phone, just arguing over it. And it came down to Philly still for my after party. And we ended up connecting. And like Puff was like the first um, real entrepreneur of my hip hop generation. So like Russell Simmons was like the generation before me. P. Diddy was like my generation. And so people idolized this guy. So when we went into the club, you know, this guy's holding court. He has champagne bottles. You know, it's like it's the rap video. Yeah. And so, you know, I told him, I said, look, man, I want to come work for you. You know, what do I need to do? And he said, um, get me that girl's number from behind the bar and, and, and that'll be your first job. And I walked <laughs> over to the bars and got her phone number for Puff and that and started working for him right after. Wow. That's a crazy story. So, so you meet Eve um, and you're managing her. And then I think I saw you eventually started managing Nelly and Floetry and some other, some other acts too. So were you like kind of just like building up a clientele at the time and just trying to manage a bunch of as, as many people as you could? Yeah. Well, one of my good friends, Jay Irvin, um, he's from Philly too. He was managing Floetry at the time. And so we just decided that we were going to join forces. One of our mutual friends sort of connected us and said, you guys need to work together. And we just joined forces and, um, and, and he had one client, I had one client, then we signed clients together and sort of built this talent management company. And it ended up being, um, probably one of the next to violator management, which, you know, was Chris Lighty's company with 50 Cent and Missy and a bunch LL Cool J. We probably had the second best talent management company in the, in the urban space. And we mm-hmm. ended up building it and then selling that company in 2004. Got it. So, I mean, would you say that at that point, Troy, you were financially in a great place or was it still just early days? I mean, and you had to kind of build on from there. I I was hood rich back then. (laughs) (laughs) Enough of my, my, my apartment that was, uh, $1,030 a month. And, um, and, and, uh, uh, me and my me and my now wife, who's my you know uh, my who's my girlfriend, she, you know I didn't have a car when we when we met, so I used her car to get around, and we kind of shared a vehicle, and so we were able to get two cars. So that was like as 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 you know rich yep. you know as 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 I got at that right. time, but I started being able to at least um, accumulate. Um, a decent income to, to, to start, you know, raising a, a young family. So, yeah. but by no means did I have any real, real money earned. Sure. You know, I'm curious, there's obviously now there's a ton of talent managers. I don't know what the scene was at the time, but you, it sounds like you kind of fell into it, right? Like it wasn't a planned career choice for you, even though now like there's like programs in college for stuff like this. But what was your purpose, right? Was it just, I want to make money because I know what it's like to not have it? Or did you truly enjoy working with these musical talents? You know, that, that's the thing. Like, I never, I never did um, anything for money. 
And, you know, even to this day when I find myself um, not enjoying what I what I do, I know it's time for it's time for things to change. So I always love music and I got into music because I loved it. When I couldn't be an artist anymore, I still wanted to be around music. So, you know, I, I promoted parties. I passed out promo records for Def Jam. I interned for Puffy. I worked for, you know, Will, Will and JL. So I just wanted to be around it mm-hmm. and, and, and stay in it. You know, if it was up to me, I would have been Drake back then, you know, but it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, I didn't have the, you know, um, you know, uh, I didn't have the the talent to 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 take take it there. But what I realized was my gift ended up being my ability to build networks and to be able to um, um, follow up. That was like my my gift back then. And for a young artist, having somebody, having a manager who could follow up for you. And, you know, and, and make cold calls and, and get you things that you wouldn't have been able to get on your own. That went a long way. So um, and, and so that was sort of my 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 foundation. But it, it I found myself, you know, sort of fast forward and, you know, we could get to this. But, you know, one of the reasons why um, I, I ended up leaving Spotify was, you know, that was a, a very high level cushy position and i love that like daniel is is one of my uh mentors and and friends who i love dearly um but it start when it felt like a job then i knew it was it wasn't feeding my soul and my in my spirit and my purpose right Right. So, um, yeah, yeah. Kind of, ju- we'll, we'll get to this part too. And, and kind of like jumping a little bit back. So you sold the company, the talent management company in 2004. Or so you said, and then I think it was a few years later when you ended up meeting Lady Gaga, right? Um, how did that whole thing come about? What were you doing at the time? And, um, I think I read that she was also kind of looking or she had been dropped by her label at the time too. And also kind of share some, some of like what that time was like. Yeah, you know, I so I, I sold the company and um and realized that I made a big mistake, and you know because we did the deal um we did the deal basically to make money, <laughs> and it was the biggest check that I ever uh, that I ever saw at that time, and um you know I I'm I, I married by this time I got a young family by this time. And they wanted, you know, uh, me to help open up the LA office, and it gave it gave me a pretty big platform, like for Guns and Roses, Destiny's Child, like some of the biggest acts in the world were managed by this company. And but I I, I saw early on that it wasn't the right culture fit, and that I like I was not happy. How and did so, you How did you assess that? How did you assess that it wasn't the right culture fit? You know what? Um, a lot of my day-to-day um, joy comes from working directly with artists, and like I like being in the the rooms when we're discussing music video treatments or marketing plans, or going into the studio to listen to music and them calling me up and playing me song ideas over the phone, and like so all of that stuff is what like feeds me. When I had to start getting into dealing with P&Ls every day, 
dealing with like, you know, it was a publicly traded company. So I'm dealing with accruals and like all of the, I like literally I felt like I became an an accountant. And so there's, there was this disconnect between uh, me and, and, and the artists. And so that part for me felt like, um, okay, this, uh, this, this, this isn't what I'm good at. This isn't what, this isn't what I do. This is, this isn't what you bought the company for, by the way, you want me, you know, out there killing it and signing more clients and all of those things. But, um, it just was a different, and, and culturally me and, and me and Jay were best, best friends, my partner, we're best friends. So we we're at dinner every night where, you know, our kids are growing up together, hanging out and we're in this corporate environment. So it just was, it just was like a fish out of water. So we were able to get out of the deal and, I reinvested in the, in this new company that I was starting and um and Eve was going to you know sort of drop this new album and she decided to to move in another direction and hire another manager um which I wasn't prepared for at that time and so mm-hmm. I ended up getting financially wiped and this is like going into the recession and you know 2000 this is like 2006 2007 time and um and it ended up becoming so difficult financially where I couldn't pay any of my, the rent at the office. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't keep any of the employees that I hired. Um, I ended up having to move out of there and, um, you know, couldn't pay tuitions and taxes and like all of the things that become a, becomes nightmares financially. It was embarrassing. Mm -hmm. It was, um, unexpected and it was it it was the literally the darkest time of my life because I went from having everything going for me to uh to nothing's working at all and so starting over um it, it it was a guy named Vincent Herbert who we grew who I came up in the business with who basically Bought Gaga out of my office as a new artist. He said, I, I got this girl that um, I want you to sign. And um, and Will Will and JL let me use a little um, cubicle office in their in their in their building. And uh, Vincent brought her in, and I'm like, wow, this is a superstar. Like I knew knew right away. Can you, I mean, so how did you know that? Like, what, what was it? So she looked like she landed from another planet. Like, you know, so, and, and one, one thing with superstars, they suck all of the air out of the room when they, when they walk in, like, you know, cause people want to see like, who is that person? Right. And, and so she was very, only difference, you know, she, she had, um, she was a brunette at that time, but, you know, still the fishnet stockings, no pants, like big glasses, you know, all of those things, like all of those elements. And she, she played a few records. One of those records was paparazzi, you know, which, you know, is a, a, was a smash on a demo and, you know, and a few other records. And she was super clear about what she wanted, like, you know, her articulate and her vision, which you don't hear that clear from artists all the time. And um, and then the next time he brought her back, um, we went to 
the fanciest restaurant I could afford at that time, which was Spaghetti Warehouse. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> man, that's rough. He was Italian, so I'm like, I gotta take, it to, <laughs> I gotta take it to an Italian restaurant, and um, that was literally we went to Spaghetti Warehouse together. It's a bold move. Bold move. And but uh, do you think, like, was it like? I mean, obviously having that kind of talent. Um, why were, were? I mean, maybe there were, but were there like a bunch of other people trying to get her to, you know, hire them as as her manager, or was it just like this talent that you saw that? People weren't seeing in her for some reason. No, like, you know, she she had gotten dropped from Def Jam. And, you right. know, so she had a record deal. Um, she had gotten dropped from Def Jam and um, and basically has spent the you know last few months, you know, in that same type of dark room that I was in. And so, you know, it, it's hard when, you know, you work that hard for something and you finally think you made it. And I could I could relate to her. And, um, you know, I just lost everything. I knew what it felt like to get dropped and like, you know, so, and she, she was like, she gave me, a, she gave me confidence that I didn't have at that time. You know, like somebody believe, like really believing in you, um, like when nobody's believing in you at that particular time and say, and she's saying, Hey, I want you to manage me. And she's like listening to every single thing that I say, you know, like, you know, cause for her, it's like, oh, you know, you, you, you did this before, you know, with, with, with Eve and some other artists, um, maybe, maybe you can do this for me. And so she had so much faith in me that I, I, I that I had no choice but to reciprocate it as much as possible because the she the gift she was giving me, I had to be able to give that back. Troy, just to take it a step back, you know, I'm I'm curious, what was or what were some of the lessons learned from that rough time, that that dark place that you were in, both personally and also uh, from a business financial standpoint? What 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 did you take out of that? You know what. Um, be good to people because like I like I go I, I go out of my way when like having come through that I go out of my way that when people are going through a, a tough time to reach out to them and it was super lonely and it, it made me a more empathetic person to other people like that, that, that was a big deal for me. Like when, when people who, who will return your phone call in 20 seconds, all of a sudden don't return your phone call anymore. Like, you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's real. And so understand valuing relationships and understanding which relationships are real and which, which are transactional. That was a real lesson for me. And I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big boy with those, with that though. Like I understand, okay, this is a business relationship and, and this, that, and that, and, and that, that was transactional. So don't let your feelings get hurt mm. when, you know, if, if, if you get let down in that particular situation. The other thing was, you know, really learning about, um, being able to diversify and be, and, and being, you know, that's 
I'll go. I'll I'll take that even a step further because it because that that's not really true. The like in hindsight, it was about diversification. In real time, it was I can't be dependent on people for um, uh, my livelihood, and and you know because somebody can make a decision that can change the course of, of, of your life and your family's life. So it made me really think about how do I build um, a business and, and a life that becomes less um, uh, reliant on the mood of somebody else or the judgment of somebody else. You know, So that was really important for me. And I think it was pivotal and and how I moved forward from that point. Yeah, that, I mean, and that's something that I think that is, and that's why I ask is is applicable across every industry, across everyone's life. I mean, you're gonna run into times that are unexpected, and I think that's what it was for you, right? Like, I mean, you wake up one day, you're like, oh, okay, we're gonna build back up, and then nope, Eve's gone, and like that's really it. I mean, I, I think a lot of people have had an Eve in their life, whether that's a person or a job or a situation, and you know, I think that, frankly, if you don't have those, it you, you kind of get comfortable, right? Like you, you do, you do, you do. You know, with, with with talent management, it's one of the reasons why I, I stopped doing talent management as well, is because really, really, really good talent managers, like the top, 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 you you pour your soul into the work, and you become one with that artist. And it's like you you literally you live on the road with this person, you know, like you you become family. And so is 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 different from you know a job, you know, that, that even a job that you could have for 10 years where you work with people, is you actually live with these people and like you become close, super close with their families and everything else. So when you do part ways, is you 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 have the um, the, the, the business heartbreak and the personal heartbreak sort of mixed into one. And I made a conscious choice of like part of, you know, one, I didn't want to be on the road anymore, but part of it too was just to be honest was I'm like, I can't, I can't take the emotional piece of it. Like, cause, cause I can't phone it in. I, I like I I can't. That's not just a business relationship for me. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's hard that that level of investment. You know, you you only can do that level that I did with Eve and Gaga specifically. You only could do that level with a few people over a course of time. Right, and I feel like that's why a lot of talent managers are known for like one or two artists, even though they've managed a bunch. It's because they've literally for whatever reason have had to invest their entire lives into it and i mean it, and it frankly it doesn't seem like it always turns out you know positive for the talent manager at times yeah you know we i call it one queen one queen per hive and it's like you know so you got that one big artist and then you sort of have you know the rest of your roster but you dedicate you know your time to that to that artist and you know um I think one of the epiphanies for me that, you know, just let me know I wasn't going to do it forever. I went to lunch with, um, with, uh, Paul McGinnis, who's U2's manager. 
Mm-hmm. And Paul was somebody who I would go to for advice, you know, just, you know, got, you know, Gaga was a rocket ships. And, and so it wasn't anybody in hip hop that was even close to Gaga, probably with the exception of Eminem in terms of like traject- trajectory. So I had to, you know, think about pop. And, um, and so I, Paul McGinnis became like a mentor and we were at lunch. And he was telling me how he had never missed a U2 show in like their entire career. And I'm like thinking about all of the U2 shows that, wow. that, that, that they had done. And, and Guy Siri was the same way with Madonna and still is to this very day. Guy goes to every single show. And, um, and I'm like, you know, I have five kids now. And, you know, at that time, I think I had four kids at that particular time when I was talking to Paul. But I'm like, when I'm with my older two kids, I was managing Eve and I had to sacrifice so much like, you know, school stuff and like, you know, all of that stuff, you know, with kids growing up, it's like you want to be there, especially for two boys or whatever. And that's, you know, looking back, I'm like, I wasn't there enough in the, in the beginning. I was out hustling, trying to build a career. And our other two kids, um, uh, sort of came, you know, right around, um, uh, right before I started managing Gaga. And so as Gaga started getting bigger and bigger and we were getting into like the third album and stuff, you know, I'm looking at things like my son's first soccer game and we are supposed to do something at the White House. And I'm like, okay, if I'm really good at this, I'll get a chance to go to the White House again. But I will mm-hmm. never get my son's first soccer game back. Um, I, I might be okay missing the third, second or third game, but it's, I will not miss his first soccer game. And that was a conscious choice I made. And, and so what I started learning was there, there, there's going to be trade-offs. It's going to be sometimes that I'm going to miss certain things at home. And it's going to be sometimes that I'm going to miss certain things, you know, um, be, uh, with, with Gaga. And what I saw, though, and and being completely frank, those sacrifices um, weakened our relationship. It weakened our relationship, like where we were still close and, you know, and and cool and everything. But, you know, um, I I do think there was some resentment that I wasn't that. I'm, I wasn't going to be everywhere all the time. You know what I'm saying? And like, I had a great team that was out on the road. And honestly, if I had to be at every show, that means somebody's not doing their job. Like, you know, mm-hmm. all of my work goes into all of the lead up on, on, on those tours, you know, the first couple of weeks, you know, you're out making sure that everything goes right in according to plan. Once things are up and running, then, you know, you, you got a team that keeps that thing running like a well, well-oiled machine. And, um, and so I think, you know, when you got that, that level of artists, they're they're expecting you to be there every single day. Mm. I mean, it just sounds like an unrealistic expectation though. I mean, like, do you think that that's something that will eventually change in the music industry? Nope. (laughs) You know, I think that there's certain artists who, who don't need that and don't feel like they need that. And then there's certain then there's other artists who who feel like it's justified, you know, for for um like 
you make a you you make a lot of money. I want you here all the time. Right. You know, and um and and so and and not to say that was Gaga by any means, but like I've seen that with other other artists too. And I yeah. mean, go for it, Pat. Sorry. Oh no, go ahead. You were gonna ask something. Right? I was just gonna say, like you know, first of all, I'm curious. Did you ever end up going to the White House? Did you ever have another chance? Quite a few times. <laughs> okay, good. Because I'm glad you went to your son's first soccer game, but I was like, I really hope that story ended up with Troy eventually ending up in the White House. You know, and 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 honestly, it's like it, it it's you know you you know I just I told you about my you know my childhood growing yeah. up, and like that's the one thing I I just wanted for my kids, like in that like my my kids being able to have both parents at at, at home. And, and a very present dad, like, you know, I'm, and I'm very involved in, in my kids' lives. Like that, that to me is like, that's the ultimate, that, like, that's wealth. That's, that's like real, real, real wealth. Hmm. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, so I know you and Gaga worked together for, you know, about seven or so years. And, and throughout that time, um, if I have my math right, you started Adam Factory which was um, kind of another management company that you you know you had managed John Legend and a few other artists um, and acts as well, um, and so I guess like what ultimately you you mentioned kind of the differences with you and Gaga and things not working out. Kind of what was that time of your life like? You know when you had kind of different artists you were managing. You know you mentioned you wanted to get out of talent talent management at some point. Um, kind of share a little bit there, and then we can kind of talk about what comes after that. Yeah, I think, you know, um, I think the like when, when Gaga and I parted ways, um, you know, I had done a lot of soul searching in terms of like, you know, what I wanted for my own life. Because, you know, as a manager, you spend your life building somebody else's career and life. And like, you, like it's, it's almost like the barber who whose hair is a mess. And yeah. so I'm like. <laughs> I want to like, I got to manage my own life too. And like, I have my own sort of dreams and aspirations. And so, you know, part of it was, you know, I, this is when ego comes into play is like, okay, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta show the industry that I, that I still got it and that I can do it without, without having a Lady Gaga. And, you know, from there, you know, I probably had more number one records um, within that period without her, then, you know, then we had to tad together. And, um, and, uh, uh, that to me was one of those things that was a bit of a validation that, okay, I can, I can still do this. At, I could still perform at a very high level as, as a talent manager. So that, so I had to do that part for myself. The ego part though was I was standing talent management. Because everybody expected me to stand, stay in talent management and I was defined as, as a talent manager. So it's like, so I started really, um, uh, I felt like I was in it for uh, more than for other people than I was for myself. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, I know it, it, it to be true because more, so many people th that were close to me were disappointed that I wasn't a talent manager anymore. And so it was, it was kind of like, oh, this is, you were more identified through this than I was. And so um, being able to let that go was hard 
It was a lot of insecurity involved. Um, you know, is those days I woke up, you know, sort of like, what did I do? Why, why did, why did I do this? And, um, but you know, is right. sometimes you got to push. I was going to say, you know, aside from all the successes, you know, talking about kind of the other side of it, which, you know, the, which is the failure side of it, which, you know, you can call it a failure or not, but it sounds like this is, there's this like recurring theme with you and your career, which is like, you know, you got dropped by the label and then you got fired by Lasseter and then you got, you know, fired by Eve and then fired by Gaga. Was it just like something that you were like expecting? Like it's part of the game. Like it'll just, cause it's interesting. Cause you know, we live in a time now where, you know, especially right now with a lot of these like layoffs at companies or just people getting fired, not knowing, like being scared to get fired or just like feeling very down about it. Um, you know, I want to kind of talk about that. Cause you know, you've been there so many times, uh, like how did you approach it every time? Did it just get easier and easier or was it just something that, you know, was just like, hey, it's part of the game. Yeah. So yeah, yes and no. So um, because, and I think I think they're they're all they're they're different for different reasons. And um, you know, so it's, it's never it's never it never feels good to get fired, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get fired on principles that you stand on, then I'm okay with that. And and you know and and. I feel like, you know, which I, I won't get into any sort of any sort of details or whatever. But you know, in in, in certain circumstances, you know, I've I felt very, 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 um, 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 I was right in terms of the principles that 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 I stood on, and that's something that just. Um, won't change for me, like, you know, specifically when it comes to management, because, you know, um, in most cases, people are going to tell our um, artists yes to everything. It's like you got a, a, a ton of sycophants. And, you know, and, and, and my job, you know, if, if somebody says, says the, you know, yes to the wrong thing, you know, you could turn out to be Amy Winehouse or Michael Jackson, for that matter. You know, right. th- those are people around those people who say yes to everything. And, and, and I care, I, I care about the people I work with too much to allow anything um, to get in the way of that. And, 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 and I'm not saying drugs or anything like that, but it could be bad business decisions or, or whatever else. Right. So that, that part, you know, those, so certain things are different in terms of how, how, I reacted, you know, um, uh, on a level, whether hurt, frustration or, or, uh, or regret. Mm. Um, the other piece of it though, is every artist that I work with, um, and for the most part, or every job that I had, I probably could have stayed there forever. Like Will still, Will still has people who have been with him since he lived in Philly that works that that still works on the team. Like that's that's like literally it's probably five people that might have like churned, you know, out mm-hmm. of the core out of the core crew. So um, and so it's I I I I'm 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 willing to take chances and I'm willing to push sometimes. Those, those pushing too hard has gotten me into into places where it's like, okay, you you push way too hard, 
And then sometimes it's pushing the boundaries of myself where it's like, I'm going to challenge myself to start over and not be afraid to start over. Yeah, and, I think that's the key of it um, is like the fear of it. Just like not being afraid to part ways or be fired for something that you believe in or stand for. Yep. And, 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 you know, like for me, I was just telling another entrepreneur a few days ago, she's, 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 um, uh, just started a company recently and I was saying, um, how she should join, um, like YPO, like young president's organization or, or, you know, some sort of, um, support group because being an entrepreneur is so lonely at times and is and and because you it is a hard path and so i've i've done i've 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 had a really good career in terms of like you know when you look at like you know over the history of my career and to be honest even with starting the the new company that i started it's times where i'm like why in the world did I decide to start over again? You know, like I have, I have those days and I, I have those days where I got to put on something motivational, you know, just to sort of feed my, feed my, 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 my psyche because right. it, like it, it could get, it could get hard. And so, um, but the, the, the wins are much more rewarding when, 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 when you win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking, so speaking of what you're up to now, I know, so you were at Spotify for a couple of years, you were the global head of creator services there, and then you ended up leaving and I believe, um, starting Q and a and Venice music, um, which is kind of what you're working on now. So, uh, tell us, tell us why you decided to do it again. Like what was kind of itching, you know, what was the itch, you know, what was something that you saw broken in the industry and, um, you know, what's kind of the approach now? Yes. Yeah, so, so, you know, I, I was a, I was an early investor in, in Spotify and, um, and was, would, con, would consult for them on like some of the U S strategy, you know, as they were coming into the U S. And so, um, I got in, become, I've become very close with, with, with Daniel Leck, the founder. And so I was working on a project with, um, um, consulting, and this is why I still have my management company. And we ended up turning that into that went from me consulting to, okay, why don't we make this bigger? And we ended up creating this division called Creator Services that was sort of the bridge between um, Spotify and the the music industry. So artists, record labels, music producers, songwriters. And and, um, and, um, I I basically helped build out the the global team. And. It was very entrepreneurial because I, it, was a, it was building a startup within within that company, mm-hmm. and so it was incredibly rewarding. But what I learned was I was so used to working with huge superstars, I knew nothing about independent artists, you know, coming mm-hmm. in, and it was an entire. It was like I was wowed by the disparity on every single level. It's like the haves and the have-nots, you know, and and. The indies rarely had access, you know, because the major labels, they have machines behind them, essentially. They have a lot of leverage in terms of their catalogs. So um, so they basically designed the system to shut out the, 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 um, in the uh, shut out independent artists. 
So a lot of what we did over there was figure out ways to, you know, to, um, to, to equal the playing field. But what I saw was that it was certain things that I couldn't do internally just because it would piss off the major labels and make it harder for Spotify. And, uh, and I talked to Daniel about being able to do, um, to build out distribution externally um, and, and which he had been, which he became supportive of. And I ended up leaving and building out, um, Q and A in Venice. So, so what is your why, you know, like with all these things and like, you know, what is, or what are some of the values that have been unchanged in your life since day one? Under underdogs, <laughs> underdogs. So like that, that for me, um, is, you know, through 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 therapy and soul searching, you know, just kind of learning more about myself over the years. Um, like, you kind of look for yourself in other people sometimes, and I and and so for me, I've always found myself rooting for the underdog, and and like almost like the, the, these helping helping them through the the hero's journey, and so. Even once I started, um, like, be, you know, being sought after as a manager, you know, by having big clients, I always still sign clients from the beginning of their careers. So it's like, so you had other management companies that really focused around signing superstars. And my, my company was different. We went out and found new artists and, de- and developed them and helped them become stars or found sort of mid-career artists and help mid-career artists sort of take their careers to the, to the next level. So, um, so that, that's, that's the one thing that I saw, like that's just sort of been this continuous through line. And I think that's what led me really um, to the path of independent artists and, and indie labels was just kind of seeing them be the underdogs and like, okay, how, how can, it, can it be us against them? You know, the same thing led me to invest in, in startups. It was like, yeah, yeah you're, sort of, you're a seed stage guy. Yes, like it's like that punk rock, early hip hop, us against them. You know, um, us against the big guy, and 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 going after it. I'm curious though, just to like you know, play devil's advocate here, isn't the goal though to have that underdog become the big dog, right? Like, yes. and so how, how do those values ever, um, you know? cross one another where you know yes you're trying to support the underdog and then they become the big dog and then now you know it's like it's like fighting this like battle almost you you just you you don't shit on the underdog once you become the big dog you know mm-hmm. so it's like you know it's so even when you looked at a lot of the tours that um that we put together with 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 our with um our artists over the years we always made sure we had developing artists on those tours or new managers on those tours or giving choreographers their first shot or, or designers their first shot or video directors their first shot. So you still it's still many, many ways you can support underdogs, you know, with, with within that. And um, and, you know, it's, it's just this lineage of underdogs that we sort of supported over the years that have become like you know, huge in different fields that they then go and sort of start hiring. So it's almost like this spirit and culture that's, that, that sort of starts from that seed and builds out from there. 
Troy, what is the future of music? And I know this is a super general question, but what does the future of music look like, right? When Pat and I were growing up and we're both 30, like our parents played cassettes and then, you know, in the car or they had their folder with, you know, all the CD-ROMs that they used to take out and put into the, you know, and now you're just streaming everything and it's a lot easier to become an artist. It's a lot easier to have your music shown to the world, whether it's YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, God knows what other services there are. What's next? You know, I'm I'm a really big believer in um, I, I would I would say met, met, metaverse with a lowercase m, hmm. and and what, and what I mean by that is the concert experience is is going to be way better than um, uh, virtually than than live at some point. And like for me, I love like um, I'm a sports fan. Like so, like um, uh, American football and and basketball are like my my two favorites. And I love Formula One. Eagles um, and uh, the seventy Eagles and Sixers. Like, those those are my teams. <laughs> Formula One, I rather watch on TV, just because I can hear what the driver's saying. I can like see the full race. You get all angles. You, you know all of those things, right? Same with American football for me, you know, where where is is a, is a great experience on um, on TV than it is within a stadium, and with concerts we haven't been able to experience you know everything from an immersive experience, you know, sort of what's going on backstage, who's calling camera angles, um, you know, like it's, it's so many intricacies, and the reality is most seats at concerts are terrible. There's a handful of really good seats at concerts. Yep. So to really get to, to see a show holistically is, is, is better from an immersive experience. So I think right. that's going to play a big role. And then also when, um, you know, from an artist standpoint, I think virtual merchandise, virtual concerts, um, uh, uh, all the, these sort of experiences where you could sort of scale audiences I think, uh, and, and, and capture the revenue from it at the same exact time. That's the part I'm looking forward to because artists, they like, they either leave money on the table or they have a big leaky bucket because everybody is in their pockets. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I'm looking forward to kind of seeing, um, a lot of those middle transactions cut out and the, and the artists being able to put more in their pockets. I'm yeah. all about, about, you know, uh, sorry, go for it, Pat. I was just going to say, what about from the standpoint of ownership? Because obviously we're seeing that change too in terms of, you know, artists having more share in, you know, in the publishing rights or whatever it might be. So, so you know, I, I, I think for, I think optionality is, 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 is the most important thing for me when it comes to artist rights. And so, because you got some artists who, are fine. You see a lot of people selling their catalogs now. Um, you know, it, it's like a regular thing with, with artists and, and songwriters and producers selling catalogs. Um, they should have the option to do that, you know? And so everybody doesn't want to own, but they should have the option of whether they want to own or not. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at, you know, the closest example for me is watching how the NBA evolved over the years. And how, you know, at one point it was a this owner's control league. 
and then now is more of a players control league. And, and, and you look at the collective bargaining agreement and how, you know, it plays to the players favor. And then you see a lot of players are saying, OK, I'm, I'm not going to take the super max deal right now. I'm going to I'm going to uh, do a two year contract because I know um, TV rights are going to make more money in the future. So uh, I'll be able to get a better contract in a couple of years. So they're negotiating for optionality. And that's what I want to see what more artists do is is don't go for the big bags of money up front. Actually go for whatever is going to give you the most optionality to be able to um, to, 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 to optimize for wealth um, or, uh, or or better choices for the future. Troy, I'm all about artists getting paid, but what what's going to happen to the quality of music? Because I feel like, and this is strictly an opinion, I do feel like music has not been as great as it was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And now I just sound like an old guy. But what's going to happen to the quality when, I don't want to say that all they care about is making money, but when the primary focus really has become, we want to just make money because for years we haven't. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think for most artists the primary focus is 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 making money. Not like just in my in my own experience, mm-hmm. it's it, it's making the money you deserve. Like you know, I think that I think that's the difference. Like where artists has, have seen um, other people capture value that they create. And so now it's just about okay, we want to capture this value as 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 well. So that that I think that's that's the that's the nuance there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I don't I don't necessarily think that music has gotten worse. It's just so much more music that yeah. is more bad music. Yeah, and the good music is harder and harder to sift through. Right. And, right. You know what I'm saying? I was going to say, it seems like one of the biggest pros for like, you know, having the labels around at some point was they were sort of like curators of mu- like the good music I get. Like they were out there, the A&Rs, like finding the good artists, you know, giving them all the resources and then putting it out into the world. And people were like, well, hey, like if, you know, they're backing up this artist, they must be good. And then boom, you know, you have this person blow up because they have the stage and the distribution and the platform. But now with, you know, with it being kind of like, well, you know, the labels are, you know, not paying the artists well enough. So like, let's just go in indie and like, let's do it ourselves and, and all this kind of stuff. And there's just so much out there, you know, with, you know, um, the ease and accessibility of getting into a studio and making an album or like having the resources to, to make a quality song. Do you, like, what, like, do you think that it really, like, how, how, how do you see the curation aspect working? You know, cause it seems like, that is really one of the biggest opportunities there, right? You, 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 you made such a, a, an amazing, amazing observation that most people take for granted. And like, so this, this is what labels were incredibly good at. And you still have some people around, you know, to, today at, at the labels that are great at developing talent. And, um, I get into a, a debate with a lot of my friends in tech that are that, and even sometimes in, within my own company about uh, data versus gut. And when you look at careers of people like you know Jimmy Iovine, who founded Interscope Records, um, Jimmy discovered you know Eminem. Uh, he did you know everybody, uh, no doubt. 
uh, Gaga, like you, you two, like a bunch of different acts, to, you know, that had gone through Interscope. You know, you got people like Clive Davis who did Whitney Houston to Alicia Keys to, you know, a ton of different acts. You got you have, you have people who so are so incredibly gifted at artist development and making stars um, that people took the skill level of it for granted over the years. Mm. And so now it's moved to, uh, to this thing where everybody's looking at data of artists that might be bubbling on SoundCloud or YouTube or independent on Spotify and they see a single jump up or they might have be hot on TikTok and then every record label's trying to sign them. But those acts, you know, it goes into that 10,000 hours thing. It's like, you got to do a lot of, a lot of shows to, to, to perform like Lady Gaga or Beyonce. Those, those, it, it was a lot of club dates before you went into those arenas, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, not skipping a step, you, you not baking a cake in a microwave. And it's like, it's the difference between a, a really, um, a, a fine cuisine or home cooked meal and going to, to Denny's and, and everybody's at Denny's right now. So it's like, you know, so when you get a billion, everyone's going to get a stomach ache. Exactly. <laughs> they, they, they're a house of pancakes right now. Like people want, people are cooking Rudy Tooty, fresh and fruities. It's like, <laughs> but, but you got guys like John Janik at Interscope who, who's, who came in after, after um, Jimmy Iovine. He's given us Olivia Rodrigo and, and, and Billie Eilish. And like, he is investing in time to really develop stars and like, and songwriters and, 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 and even down Atlantic records with um, Julie and uh, Greenwald and Craig Cowman with Bruno Mars and Ed Sheeran and, and Lizzo and like they're investing in it, but it's like, then you got this crowded industry that's just treating art like it's an assembly line. And that's why we're getting this reaction that, you know, music sucks right now. Hmm. Yeah. But see, to that point, um, it sounds like what you're saying is like, obviously, there's a lot of positives that the sort of traditional label model, record label model brings, which is developing talent. But then then you have the other side, which is like the talent wants to own as much piece of their music as they can. And like, you know, maybe go the independent route or, or what have you like what how do you see that all playing out i mean do you do you see i mean do you see like labels just kind of shifting with the times but staying around and staying very you know uh prominent in the space or 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 because because with all these like new technologies coming out that's giving like artists more ability to distribute themselves and that kind of stuff um what do you think happens to that model yeah you know i think you know the record labels have big catalogs you know so so you know and the catalogs are becoming more valuable as 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 we see Mm -hmm. and you know i think the answer becomes somewhere in the middle of of your of your question so where record labels can be valuable um and they should be rewarded for taking a bet on a new artist, you know? So when nobody believes record labels are stepping up and they're saying, we're going to spend millions of dollars on investing in this artist. And most of the time we're going to lose money because, you know, it's almost like venture. Right. And, and so you got to have, you know, the, the big superstars that sort of pay for, for these, you know, law, this portfolio of losses. 
But when the big superstars win and you make a windfall, I think the the, the financial uh, dynamics should shift at that point. So it's like, okay, instead of it being an 80-20 deal, okay, does, does it then become 50-50? Does it then become 70-30 in the artist's favor? Does it then become 20, um, uh, 80 to the artist, 20 to the label? And, you know, and, and that becomes the a, a arrangement. And then you have um, the rights to that project uh, revert to that artist over a set period of time. Like to me, that can be a standard model that just exists yeah. across the industry versus uh, artists get paid. You know, they invest a million dollars. Artists has they they have to pay all of that money back. By the way, so this isn't them buying rights. Right. This is and essentially yeah. a loan. So they got to yeah. pay all of that back, and then they're on the, uh, a twenty percent royalty, and the label's getting eighty percent once it's paid. Once it's paid back. That sounds like my real estate deal model, where like you're you're essentially making a percentage. Or based on the percentage of the return, you make a higher amount. So, like, yes, you're even more incentivized as the artist to, you know, ensure your own success, yes. right? And then same for the labels. Like, I mean, it would be a mutual, it would be a mutually beneficial situation because, you know, the better they do, the better everybody does. Yep. In this case, it's just a, it's just one sided, or at least it historically it was more one sided. Yeah, yeah, I think it's. Um... You know, it's, it's just a, it's a long history between, you know, you, you never you rarely, rarely, rarely hear artists say, I love my record label. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's very rare. Mm-hmm. And, um, and 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 that's for it's, it's, it's because this, the way the system is designed, um, I think is a new generation of, of independent labels that are that are out there that are looking at models totally different that are looking at partnerships with the artists and like real profit sharing and um, uh, aligned incentives that um, hopefully will, will sort of change the model and, and, but you know, they got to become success successful so that people could point to those case studies. Mm -hmm. So what's next for, for Q and a and, and Venice music collective, like what is kind of the, the sort of near term vision of, of what you're, you know, you hope to accomplish, like, in terms of what success looks like? You know, a, a lot of what we've been focused on is redefining what it means to be independent. And so, um, you know, we like what I loved about the Web3 space that um, like the most attractive thing was um, this idea around community. And that to me is when like my light bulb went off in terms of like what best practices can we sort of steal from this, this space. And, um, and so we've been focused around like with Venice, you know, our, our primarily we do music distribution, you know, which is, you know, getting music from um, people's computers essentially to all of the global DSPs. And then we have a services division that sort of, helps independent artists with digital marketing strategy, playlisting, um, uh, all of those things. But the most exciting piece to me is the community that's coming together because it's like, it's not just artists that are part of that community, it's music producers, it's videographers, it's it's managers, it's people who are trying to figure out how to be in the music industry. Um, One of the hardest things in the beginning is just starting your career um, is, is network. 
So, you know, having this community kind of serves as, as its own network. So when you got people in our Discord that are trying to figure out, oh, I'm looking for a manager, like what questions should I be asking? Or um, can I get feedback on these beats or whatever that I, that I just did? And you start to see this sort of collaboration and conversation. To me, that's the core of, 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 of the spirit of Venice, you know, so um, so when I look, when we look at it, we're looking at it through sort of tools, knowledge and network. So th- those are the, the sort of three pillars that we sit on. Troy, I'm sure we can keep this conversation going forever, but we want to obviously respect your time. And I mean, your story is, I mean, I think it's beyond inspirational from where you came and your mindset. And I loved it from the get go when you, you, you talk about, you know, thoughts become things. And I think that, you know, had you not embraced that early on, a lot of these things would not have happened. And I think that that applies for a lot of people's lives is, and I know it's cliche, but like, you know, if you can dream it, you can achieve it type thing, right? Mm -hmm. If you can visualize your life in a certain way, even if you don't get there, I think you'll get pretty damn close. And I think that scary people like the disappointment of something not happening for people People, people don't, you don't want to dream because you don't want to be disappointed. (laughs) Like that's what happens to most people. Right. That's what happens. And it's like, you, you know, the, the, I, 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 all people, and this is, this is what like for, for, especially with kids and like, I'm so, I'm so conscious of this with my own kids is like, people will project their failures on you. So it's like, and, and sometimes it could just be, a look, the look of uh, on somebody's face when you tell them an idea or or you know verbal feedback they may give you or body language they may give you that make cuz like these ideas are um they're almost like um like uh they're being fertilized so 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 when 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 you say, when you say an idea and that idea is not fully formed and somebody kills it with energy it goes away at that, at that at that point. So a lot of stuff I keep to myself because I like because I, I got to protect it until it gets to a certain point where it can live. Mm-hmm. So it's like we 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 just got to be careful with 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 our own words with people, and we got to mm-hmm. constantly feed ourselves with with. Sometimes it sounds like delusion, but we got to constantly feed ourselves with the delusion of 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 success right and you know i think to that point troy i think at times others that are you know discouraging or they use their own bad experiences and they project it on you um you know i don't think they necessarily mean you know they're not trying to be mean or they're not trying to discourage purposely they just haven't had the idea to in your words fertilize a thought further and really obsess about it and really try to make it come true and i i really do think that it is hard. It is hard to make ideas come to life. It is hard to convince people to do things. Like even at my work, like there's times that I think my ideas are amazing, but you know, I'm a young guy going up against people that have reached a level of success and comfort. And it takes time for them to keep saying, okay, you know, this guy, this kid's getting annoying, but then they'll realize, oh shit, you know, maybe he's onto something, but you just got to keep doing it. Right. Like, and it's easier said than done. And, but the reality is that it's hard, Right there's not a lot of people that end up on podcasts like this or have success stories because they just stopped or they just didn't, you know, they, they just gave up. It's the ones that I mean, ended up. 
you know, keep, I'm glad, keep on going I'm glad on. The world, I'm glad the world got to see um, the Kanye documentary on Netflix. Um, I was around for a lot of that. And, 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 and I know, I know Kanye pretty well. And Ye came into my office. This is when I was working with John Legend. Um, Ye executive, people don't know Ye discovered John Legend. And Ye actually gave him the name Legend. He's John Stevens before. And um, so when I started working with John, you know, we were able to get Kanye to come back and, and collaborate with John on a project. Kanye came to my office and he whipped out this piece of paper and I called it the un, the unorg chart. And it was like, it was all of his stuff on this, on this paper. And he's walking me through how he was going to go into the, into these areas. And he's explaining his vision for fashion and shoes and all of these things. At that time, it was like, he had literally bought sewing machines and invested his entire publishing advance and to hiring people, he had moved to Italy to uh, and and was in like working out of a warehouse or, and like all of these things or whatever. And everything that Kanye told me he was going to do, he pretty much did it. Pretty much did it. And when you look at people like Kanye, who people you know he's you know. Uh, Kanye is who he is and people think he, he he's, you know, eccentric off, off the charts or whatever. But the guy is a genius and he's willing to put in the work and he's willing to drive a Mack truck through a cul-de-sac to get it done. You look at a guy like Elon Musk, who puts so much skin in the game and, and had to take out loans, you know, while he was trying to build like Tesla. You know what I'm saying? Like you think of you think about a guy who made a fortune at PayPal, who sort of bet his life on building electric cars when no when electric cars were failing, you know, and and even down to like God, like Gaga, her her vision of what she was going to do. People thought she was crazy. And so that to me is like that's more of a reality to, in my mind than getting up at, every day um doing something that kills your soul you know what i'm saying like because right. because i see it both ways i see that you know people's thoughts become things when they become unhappy at their job and that's that becomes their life and i see it when people's wildest dreams become our biggest inspirations 100 percent. think good thoughts manifested uh troy can't thank you enough you know just just being here and, and just sharing and being so open about your story and, and all the sort of wisdom you've accumulated you know throughout your incredible career and um you know i'm, I'm sure there's a lot yet to be done work-wise so excited to see what comes next um you know for you and all the projects you're involved with but this has been a pleasure thank thank you send me good vibes for venice <laughs> <laughs> <Always>. <laughs> all right, thank you guys thank you troy